You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. During the first Gulf War in 1991, Iraq's mobile Scud missiles gave the United States Air Force and Navy pilots trouble. The Iraqi soldiers were able to fire them long before the U.S. planes could find their location and blow them up. After the war, General John Jumper changed air combat doctrine to address that issue. He formalized the techniques necessary to compress the time it takes to find and kill the enemy on the battlefield. The Air Force's target acquisition model is called Find, Fix, Track, Target, Engage, and Assess, also known as F2T, 2EA, because, you know, military acronyms. More simply, the Air Force calls it the kill chain. Jumper's mandate to the Air Force was to compress the kill chain from hours or days to under 10 minutes. And now, fast forward to 2010, the Lockheed Martin research team took that idea and applied it to cyber defense. My name is Rick Howard. You are listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. This is the third show in a planned series that we are doing on Network Defender First Principles. In the first episode, I described the construction of a metaphorical InfoSec wall based on first principles and presented an argument about what the ultimate cybersecurity first principle is, and that will be the foundation of our InfoSec program. In the second episode, I laid the first block on that foundation. It is a passive defensive strategy that involves systematically closing all the windows and doors in your digital environments. You know it as zero trust. In this episode, I cover a more active strategy with a more sexy military sounding name, a complementary strategy to zero trust. It's called the intrusion kill chain. If you have somehow landed here without hearing the first two episodes, you should really go back and listen. You can listen to all of these as standalone episodes if you want, 
But then you will not get the benefit of understanding how cool my wall metaphor links everything together. And I know you're all about the metaphors. The idea of cyber intrusion kill chains is so obvious to me that I am astonished that many organizations do not have a robust strategy already in place. It began with the famous white paper from the Lockheed Martin research team back in 2010. That paper introduced the network defender world to the concept and revolutionized how we all thought about digital protection. The previous strategy was something called defense in depth and most network defenders were pursuing some version of it as far back as the late 1980s. The main characteristic of Defense in Depth, and you can say this about Zero Trust too, is that it's passive. Network defenders would install overlapping digital defensive controls and hope that the bad guys would run into them. The in-depth part of the strategy was the idea that if the bad guys somehow got past the first control, they would probably run into the second. And if they got past that, they would most likely run into the third, etc., etc. When I shall sit, you shall sit. When I shall kneel, you shall kneel, etc., etc., etc. The reason the strategy is passive is that it's not based on how specific cyber adversaries attack their victims. It is a general-purpose protection scheme. It is similar to an infantry platoon setting up a defensive perimeter. The soldiers have no specific knowledge of when and where the enemy will attack, so they install a defense-in-depth posture. They dig fighting positions so that they're not exposed to enemy fire. They put overhead cover on the fighting positions so that they're protected from hand grenades. They coordinate overlapping fields of fire with the positions on their left and their right so that there are no gaps in the coverage area to their front. You get the idea. Defense-in-depth tactics are not based on intelligence. They are general-purpose practices designed to defend against any kind of an attack. They are necessary, but not sufficient. The genius of the intrusion kill chain strategy is that it provides a framework for deploying defenses where we know the enemy must travel. In my infantry platoon scenario, it's like discovering that we know the exact avenue of approach the enemy will take to attack our position. Any platoon leaders that knew the approaching enemy would most likely cross the river in front of our position at a specific point and then walk up a slight rise would have something special planned when the enemy got there. It's the same thing for digital defense. The Lockheed Martin team realized that all cyber adversaries, regardless of their motivations like crime, espionage, hacktivism, low-level cyber conflict, and just general mischief, and regardless of the tool set they use to accomplish their mission, must traverse the same digital ground to complete their task. In other words, all cyber adversaries have to negotiate the same attack milestones to be successful. Lockheed Martin called these milestones the intrusion kill chain, taking the name from the U.S. Air Force called their process for quickly tracking down targets on the battlefield. Since the original Lockheed Martin publication, many network defenders have tweaked the concept by adding their own special sauce to it. But from the original, these are the seven attacker milestones. Recon. The bad guy recons their victim's network looking for potential defensive weaknesses. Weaponization. They take that intelligence, adjust their existing tool set, and create new tool sets as needed to leverage those discovered weaknesses. Delivery. They deliver some of their tools to the potential victim. Exploitation. They either trick their victims into running one of their tools 
that gives them access to the victim's machine or trick them into giving up their credentials so that the bad guys can run those tools like they were the victim themselves. Installation. The bad guys install their tools on the victim's computer. Command and control. Then the bad guys establish a communications channel back out to the internet somewhere so that they can report status and download additional tools they might need for the campaign. Actions on the objective. They begin to move laterally within the victim's network, looking for the data they have come to steal or to destroy. Once they find it, they exfiltrate it out through the command and control channel. Think about each milestone in the attack sequence, each link in the chain, as an opportunity to disrupt the hacking campaign. Instead of the defense-in-depth idea of general-purpose controls, network defenders deploy controls at every phase of the intrusion kill chain designed specifically for every known adversary campaign. For example, if we want to stop a Fancy Bear campaign, we design and deploy specific controls to counter how Fancy Bear recons for victim weaknesses, for the malware they deploy, for the techniques they use to deliver their malware to their victims, for the exploitation code they use to compromise victim zero, for the process they use to download and install additional tools to help them in their mission, for the interdiction of their communications channel, and finally, for how they move laterally within the victim's network looking for the data they've come to steal or to destroy. With this model, we know exactly where Fancy Bear is going to cross the river in the digital space. So let's make it difficult for the bear every step of the way. But I'm out of my depth here. It is one thing to talk about fancy bear in the abstract. It is quite another to track these adversary groups and the campaigns that they run on a daily basis. I needed to talk to an expert, someone who has been in the trenches tracking adversary campaigns from the very start, from when Lockheed Martin first published their paper. I needed to talk to my good friend, Ryan Olson. I am Ryan Olson. I'm the Vice President of Threat Intelligence for Palo Alto Networks, and I run our global threat intelligence team that we call Unit 42. We have been friends for well over a decade, and we work together at two different companies doing commercial cyber intelligence, iDefense and Palo Alto Networks. So I was going back through how long we've worked together, and I couldn't pin down the exact numbers. How long have we uh, been doing cyber intelligence together? 2006 was the uh, when I had my internship at iDefense, when I first met Rick Howard, and he said the magic words to me that I still remember, iDefense is a magazine. <laughs> I still remember. <laughs> <laughs> I still believe that. I know. I don't think you were wrong either. I just, I remember that was like the very first meeting that we had. You've been tracking uh, at one adversary group called Oil Rig for a while now. So I'm interested in the attack sequences that Oil Rig has launched against it, its victims, right? So let's start with weaponization. Can you tell me the tools that Oil Rig has used in the past that we can look for? Yeah, the tools are some of the most interesting things that we've seen from Oil Rig. Um, typically, when we think about it, an adversary in that weaponization phase, we're thinking about how do they build these tools? How do they select them? And if the tools are commodity off the shelf things, that's interesting because they're using things that they can freely access. But when they're custom tools, they give us an opportunity to actually trace the evolution of the tool over time and make it easier for us to attach multiple attacks back to the same group. 
So if, uh, if they're building the tools and they're using them themselves, it makes it easier for us to connect the dots on those. Um, and oil rig loves custom tools, tons and tons of custom tools, occasionally off the shelf tools, especially for post-exploitation stuff, but most of the time completely custom. So then the next phase is delivery. How do they deliver some of those tools to get them to victim zero on their, on their target list? So the vast majority of the attacks we've seen from oil rig for delivery of the, the tool uh, has been over email. And typically it's an email that has a file attached to it. Uh, the files are oftentimes Office documents, either Excel or Microsoft Word. And normally they contain some really compelling information in the email itself to convince the victim to open that file. Um, it'll be something related to their business, something that's topical, something that might be very relevant to the individual who receives it. But most of the time, it's that attachment that they want them to open. Um, and once they open it, that's when their system's going to get infected. Uh, they do have custom so, tools for this as well, for those actual delivery documents, as we refer to them. So for in those files they send over, uh, are they trying to do exploits where they're actually breaking in using a, a software exploit? Or are they tricking them, tricking their victims into uh, giving up their uh, credentials somehow? So I look back across the delivery tools that we've seen used by oil rig in the past, and it's actually very rare that they exploit a vulnerability. In the majority of cases, they attach a file, the user opens it, uh, and then they have to enable macros in some way. They have to enable that active content, as Microsoft calls it, which will then run a PowerShell script or a VB script, something else which actually infects the computer with the malware. Uh, we did see them exploit vulnerabilities back in 2017, one office vulnerability in particular, 2017-0199. Um, but that was uh, the exception to the rule. Typically, these are just social engineering, convince the person to click on it so that they actually are saying, hey, I'll just go ahead and run this malware on their system. So I'm, I'm confused a little bit, Ryan, about how uh, oil rig gets access to the system. Are they tricking the victim into revealing credentials somehow? How is that happening? Yeah, so their typical goal is to install some malware on the system, something that's going to give the attacker access to the machine so that they can run commands on it. Uh, they've got different tools for this, custom ones, a couple names that we've uh, given to the malware. One was called Quad Agent, another one that's called Helmet, another called Ism Agent. We've given them lots of great names over time. And they're typically pretty simple. One of the reasons we think that Oil Rig has built so many tools is they don't spend a ton of time building these really in-depth custom tools that have GUIs and things like that, although they do occasionally. They build a tool that's relatively simple, and if it gets burned, they can move on and create another one. But it doesn't really take a lot of sophistication on that tool to actually be able to exfiltrate credentials. Uh, we've seen Oil Rig use Mimikatz and other sort of credential dumping tools after the fact, after they've infected the computer with that initial implant, dump the credentials and then upload them back to the attacker. So that installation phase is really about get the malware on the box, get access to that host. So now they're on the victim's machine. Uh, do they do a custom command and control channel or do they just use regular stuff that everybody else uses? Oil Rig has, their tools have the most interesting command and control channels. So typically, and this isn't true for all of them, but the common pattern we've seen is they have an HTTP-based command and control channel so it talks to a web server, just makes a request out to it, sends some information, and it gets some information back. But if that is blocked for some reason, so maybe there's an IPS in between those two hosts and it's blocking, or the domain for the website is blocked. Instead, what the malware will do is fall back to a DNS tunnel, where it creates a custom tunnel just using DNS requests, where it packs the data into the actual name of, you know, abcd.badguy.com and it gets back an IP address where it actually converts that from a you know a four 
8-bit numbers into actual data it can use. And different command and control, different DNS tunnels they've built over time, all with slightly different protocols, but all very interesting and good at evading detection. So then we're finally at the last stage of lateral movement, okay, actions on the objective. Anything special here for oil rig? So in this case, oil rig once again comes back to interesting custom tools that we've seen. Um, so the, the typical goal in an oil rig intrusion is maintain persistence inside that network through access to credentials and by not relying just on that implant that they originally installed. So what we've seen them use um, beyond just sort of stealing these credentials, and like I said before, you know, getting access to Active Directory controllers and dumping credentials out of them, is a series of custom web shells that they've created where they typically target an Outlook web access server, so the email server the company is using. They infect it with some malware by getting access to the server, and that is actually accessible to the outside world um, via the internet where they can actually issue commands on that host. Uh, so a web shell typically is in the form of, you know, a PHP or an ASP file. But in oil rigs case, they've made some really complicated ones that are built as compiled DLLs that are very, very stealthy and hard for someone to actually identify on that OWA server after it's been infected. And that allows them to keep access to that network, even if they've scrubbed all the other hosts and it's an access point that's easily accessible because everyone wants to be able to access their OWA server from the internet. I love Ryan. He makes it all sound so easy. But that is absolutely how you track an adversary campaign. You learn every detail of what adversaries do as they traverse the intrusion kill chain. You might be saying that this is all well and good for government intelligence agencies and Fortune 500 companies. They can track adversary activity across the intrusion kill chain. But you have a small staff. You don't have the resources to do this kind of thing. How do small and medium-sized businesses compete against this seemingly limitless army of hackers out there trying to cause my organization harm? Here's a non-intuitive thought. There are not that many of them. It turns out that the number of adversary groups like Fancy Bear and Oil Rig that are active on the internet on any given day is not that big. Nobody knows for sure how many there are. But the Cyber Threat Alliance, a cyber threat intelligence sharing group made up of about 28 cybersecurity vendors, they estimate that the number is between 50 and 100. The number of attack campaigns they run collectively is also not known for sure, but we do know that many groups run multiple campaigns. The Cyber Threat Alliance estimates that the total number of campaigns from all of the adversary groups could be as high as 500 on any particular day. The thing about multiple campaigns run by a specific adversary group like Fancy Bear or Oil Rig is that they are not 100% unique. Fancy Bear doesn't string one set of techniques across the intrusion kill chain for one campaign and then string another completely different set of techniques for another. Instead, Fancy Bear tweaks. The group uses many of the same elements of campaign one in campaign two but might use a different malware version or a different communications protocol or change some other bit of the attack sequence. In reality, adversary groups don't run 500 unique campaigns on any given day. They run variations of a smaller number of campaigns, and that puts the advantage with the defender. If you already have prevention controls in place for campaign one, when campaign two emerges, your networks are already protected for the bulk of the attack sequence, except for the new pieces. The trick is to get the intelligence on the new bits quickly. Design prevention controls for your already deployed security stack 
and then distribute those controls to the security stack in all of its permutations, like behind the traditional perimeter, in your data centers, on your employee mobile devices, in your SaaS services, and in your multi-cloud IaaS workloads. How we do that will take up two additional blocks on our first principle info security wall, intelligence operations and DevSecOps. I will talk about those in later episodes in this series. My biggest pet peeve with the Network Defender community is that we have become comfortable reacting to the latest technical threats and don't stop to think that there are humans behind these technical threats trying to accomplish some task. We like to talk about the latest serial day exploit or the newest piece of malware or the recent ransomware. We put all of our resources into blocking these one-off technical tools and spend little time trying to stop the humans that use them to accomplish some mission. Our foundational first principle is to reduce the probability of material impact to our company due to a cyber event. We can play whack-a-mole by blocking technical tools all day long and we'll probably have some effect. But if we decide to utterly defeat the humans that are using those tools, our impact can be so much larger. We shouldn't just be blocking a random tool with no relation to the hackers behind it. We should be blocking every single tool, every possible technique, at every phase of the intrusion kill chain that the hackers use. We want to give Fancy Bear no place to hide. We want to force Oil Rig to spend resources designing new attack tools, and then we will block those too. And I am not talking about attribution here either. For the most part, it doesn't really matter if Fancy Bear is Russian, Chinese, Klingon, or for that matter, working for Hydra. What matters is the digital path Fancy Bear takes to harm my organization. Just like our infantry platoon leader, I want to have something ready at every digital river crossing, every digital bridge, and at every digital mountain ridge that Fancy Bear crosses. I want oil rig so frustrated with the obstacles I put in its path that it decides I'm no longer worth the effort. You can't do that if you only focus on random tools with no context about which group is using them. You can only do that if you design defensive plans targeting specific adversary campaigns. And it's not like there are a million campaigns running today. There are only 500. If you chose to, you could probably manage it all in a spreadsheet. I don't recommend it, but you could probably do it. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Intrusion kill chains are part of the key atomic thinking to our first principle, cybersecurity wall. 
It's as important as the zero trust strategy. You can't just pursue one strategy and not do the other. You have to do both. In fact, you'll also have to follow a third strategy, resilience, but we'll talk about that in the next episode. For this building block though, we add a key element into our InfoSec wall. We're no longer just implementing a passive strategy for a general purpose defense. Intrusion kill chains allow us to pursue an active defensive strategy tailored for how the adversary will specifically attack us. And it gives us another lever to pull to reduce the probability of material impact from a cyber event. Well, that's a wrap. If you agree or disagree with anything I have said, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter and we can continue the conversation there. The CyberWire's CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and the executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Engineering and music design and original music by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.